I believe that veterans are the key to unlocking America's next golden age. By empowering and influencing one million veterans to transition well and become leaders in their communities, we can unlock our country's destiny and continue to change the world. My name is Bernard Bergen. Anthony J. Diaz speaks six languages, but his top two are Spanish and Italian. Anthony is a first-generation American born of Colombian parents who migrated to the U.S. in the 1970s. Anthony went on to earn a bachelor's in anthropology and history from the University of New Mexico. He then made his way back to New Jersey, where he worked as a paralegal and enlisted in the U.S. Army Reserves. Anthony served eight years, achieving the rank of staff sergeant and deploying all over the world, participating in Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Anthony continued to distinguish himself and was selected as a Thomas R. Pickering Graduate Foreign Affairs Fellow during his graduate education at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where he received his Master's in International Relations and Economics in 2007. He entered the U.S. State Department's Foreign Service in 2008 with a political career track. Anthony served as a political economic officer in Saudi Arabia, a vice consul at the U.S. consulate in Dubai, a political military affairs officer at Embassy Baghdad, and is currently special assistant to the United States ambassador in Rome. Great to have you on the show, Anthony. Let's get started. Thanks again, Anthony, for being on the show. First question is very straightforward. What would you say to your younger self as you began your military service? Okay, well, uh, thanks for the opportunity to be on this podcast. What would I say to my younger self? Well, I think I would have recommended or suggested to think as clearly and as clearly as possible and in as long-term a fashion as possible about the prospects of my career within the service, choosing my MOS, reserve versus active duty, and the expectation or the benefit of my career if I had decided to transition outside of the military. So how can my military MOS, my career reserve versus active duty benefit me if I decide to transition? Those would have been the starting blocks of advice that I would give to myself. And part of that applies to uh, enlisted versus officer corps at the time. I did go enlisted after university. I perhaps would have tried to persuade my older self or my younger self to think much more about the officer corps and the benefits within the military of joining the officer corps and the long-term benefits of using the officer corps experience to transition out of the military. Wow. Wow. That's a very detailed plan. And the second question ties in to the first one. Would the younger version of you keep that advice and just listen to how you lay things out? That's a great question. Um, not sure. When I enlisted, I did have a specific purpose with my MOS. I, I did it with the idea of a potential career options and how it might benefit me if I was to transfer to a professional field, whether in the public sector or in the private sector. I did sort of have the plan where I enlisted after university, I wanted to understand more about the NCO core 
and I had intended to eventually transition to the officer corps when I applied for graduate school. I ultimately didn't do that because I was awarded a fellowship from the State Department, and so I don't think it was even possible to do the ROTC officer corps scholarship for graduate school at that point. Now, segueing into the next question, if someone was considering serving, would you give them the same advice or would you shift that advice based on the individual? That's a good question because I think there's elements of, uh, it's certainly kind of a yes for both. I would always recommend to somebody to think about the value of the, for themselves, of the officer corps versus, say, the enlisted corps. Now, it's certainly going to depend on each person because of the of education. And when I look back at young folks who I have um, mentored or have tried to give advice to about my military experience, this has probably been the main thing I've, I've focused on. And again, the enlisted corps, the NCO, NCO corps, as we all know, is the backbone of the military. It's an amazing professional experience. But at the same time, I, in my experience, I've seen that it, it's officers who, who ultimately run, or I should say manage, and are the ones in charge of commanding troops and, at higher and higher levels. So if you're looking to develop professional skills at a young age, and you have the opportunity because you're either going to university or you've graduated, the officer corps makes a lot of sense. And those are the variables I've tried to talk to people about. Ultimately, I tell people, choose what you think is the best for you and, and use it the best way, the most effectively possible. I really enjoy that answer because you're speaking to a career in the military with the truth that we all transition at some point. And I think what experience you want when you transfer should be a part of what level you decide to serve at. I think that's great advice for those who are considering serving and those who are currently serving who still have some options to either go higher in their training and their service or continue on the path that they're currently on. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I think you highlight that perfectly. Thanks. Thanks. One word answer. When I say military transitions, you say? Stressful. <laughs> great words. Yeah. If I, if I was able to add a follow-on, I would say full of opportunities, but stressful. It's one of those things where the world outside is unknown, especially for folks who have been active duty, and it's all they've ever done. It's a very different system. It's not as organized. It's not as hierarchical, and uh, it's a different language even. It's stressful. I think that's it's normal to, to feel that stress about transitioning. Yeah, yeah. I think no one escapes the stress of that transition and just highlighting that this is a reality that we all face. I think it's very important for those currently serving and even for those who have transitioned already so that they know that we've all experienced this. Absolutely. And it takes a lot of flexibility to make that transition. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about your work now and what you enjoy most about being in this space. Okay. I'm a foreign service officer uh, with the Department of State. I'm a political officer. That's my career track. Essentially, a diplomat of the U.S. government. 
and we work overseas mostly. The majority of our careers overseas. We work in embassies, and we work in different sections within embassies. I, for one, would normally work in a political section, doing things like political reporting, building networks with the political class in a country, and reporting on those types of things, and, and being an expert in that field. That's generally what one would do as a political officer in the Foreign Service. I'm currently a special assistant to the U.S. ambassador at the U.S. Embassy in Rome, which is a little bit different than what you would normally do as a political officer. But a lot of it is similar to what an aide-de-camp would do for a commanding general, for example. It's a similar type of, uh, of job. What I've enjoyed the most about this is, well, the experience to live uh, in so many different great places, meet so many different people, but do it on behalf of the U.S. government and be the face of the United States to the rest of the world. It's a very serious job. It's one that, uh, that I take a lot of pride in, and it's one where a lot of the skills you learn as a soldier or as a some from the military are applicable. Discipline and maintaining the highest ethical standards, these are all part of the job. But this is a much more analytical job than maybe your, your typical uh, military job. There's a lot of writing involved and a lot of analysis about the lay of the land, the political lay of the land, the economic lay of the land, etc. But it's been a fascinating career and it's uh, certainly one where I've seen a lot of veterans uh, transition to. Uh, it's public service. Uh, it's still being part of an organization that's larger than oneself or than simply a bottom line, as maybe a private sector, as a private sector industry normally dictates. It's been a fascinating career. So was service just a deep part of what you wanted to continue to do as you transitioned? I think for me, yes, because a big part of my story is one of a first-generation American. My parents immigrated to the U.S. Uh, in the 60s. They were legal permanent residents for a long time and finally became citizens, but I was born here in the U.S., and so first-generation. And, you know, my folks came from very humble uh, background, and uh, within one generation, you know, I was able to go to university, to a master's degree to uh, live in a country that's relatively safe and have opportunities available, uh, whereas my parents did not. And so going back to where they're from and coming back to the United States, having that understanding very early on that things are not the same everywhere, that in this country we have some very amazing opportunities that are not available in a lot of places. This has only become even more true as it travels more. And so that, that type of thing really made me want to continue in the service of the United States, of, of promoting our ideals, of being a steward of our government. Wow, well said. I really value that perspective because I know for many in this country, you know, that beacon of hope that our country represents, that's a worldwide thing. And just to hear your story and how you take such care in representing our values everywhere you serve, everywhere you live. I think many in the service, many looking for what's next, will resonate to that idea and those ideals. Certainly. And it's, uh, you know, it's not something that is, I would say it's much more the opportunity to continue a career where those motivations still play a 
initial role in what you do. Certainly in public service, you can do that. In the private sector, it's a little bit different. But then again, I think you can apply it both ways. But um, yeah, public service at least provides one, the, the, especially a veteran, the opportunity to continue uh, serving the country in the ideals. Probably in a way that's much more apparent than in the private sector. Great. Yeah, great response. And I think, you know, just very transparent about how to think about career beyond the uniform. I think at times we don't think deeply about aligning our values, but not only did you think about that, you're living out your values and what you do right now. And I think that's important for veterans and transitioning service members to hear so that they make that right next decision with their values on the table. Well, there, there are certainly many, but one of the ones that uh, I've noticed that I've been able to bring from the military that's not always abundant, that is not always uh, ubiquitous in what I do every day or what I see is just taking responsibility or uh, really pride themselves on it, taking responsibility for their decisions and for their actions, for what they've done and for what they didn't do. And I think that is something that is not instilled in people on a general level. Wow. Take responsibility. I know that once you take the uniform off, you can kind of blend in with the crowd, but you're hearing it from someone who's serving at a very high level that that's one of the things that we've learned to do as we serve in the military. And if we continue to do, it helps us stand out and distinguish ourselves in our new roles. Certainly. Certainly. Right. Next question is, more geared towards employers, you know, and you have seen service at very high levels. If you were speaking to employers, even within the foreign service, maybe within the private sector, what would you share with them as they are looking to employ veterans? Nowhere can you find people who were more instantly adept at becoming part of a team and being an integral player of that team. And veterans are people who find a way to play to, to play a specific role on a team and may be more willing to recognize a weakness and play to their strength um, on a team. So overall, I would say that if you have an organization that requires uh, people to work together toward a common goal, you're not going to find anybody better than a veteran to be part of a team and to possibly even lead within that team and to lead with a very clear set principles. Yeah, that's very clear. I always try to share that what military members bring to the table is values-based leadership. And that's different than just traditional leadership because in the military, we understood that we led the entire human being. You were responsible for everything that affected their ability to be effective in their role to include family. And you were supposed to build to the optimum environment in each situation. And it really allowed you to, to not take for granted how much leadership impacts every individual. And I think if employers tap into that, they have people that can rise within their ranks and really help take their companies to the next level. Absolutely. What would you say to service members right at the start 
of their transitions process. I mentioned the word before, and I'll say it again. You you have to be flexible. That really is critical. You have to be flexible. You have to be willing to let your ideas change. What we think we want to do sometimes is not always what we actually want to do in the end. And that happens because we're affected by ideas imposed on us or, or things that we think are natural fit work. Perhaps they're not. I'm not saying not to follow one's uh, dream, so to speak, but it's important to be flexible and to understand that sometimes the path is, is longer to meeting your objective. And the other thing I would say is that for transitioning members, especially network is critical. And network is tough because not everybody really understands what that means. Uh, network is, is a group of people that you build. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that's uh, given to you. You have to go out and search and begin to build this network. And nowadays, there are a lot of ways to do this. It's become much more simple. If you're on something like LinkedIn or you're on something like Facebook, LinkedIn is probably the best one because it allows you to see what um, other folks are doing and where they're working or where they're studying. And really, you have to be confident and not be too concerned about making the cold call, as it's called. If you see somebody who's got an interesting background uh, or they went to a school you're interested in going to, just send them a message. Could I call you? Or could I invite you for a cup of coffee? Something along those lines. You have to be willing to take that first step to building a network. Very important. I like that answer. Yeah, we all need a so different set of mentors, leaders, battle buddies as we transition. And to not build that network, I think really leaves a void in social and just economic opportunities because you're stepping into a new world, you're stepping onto a new playing field. And, and as you mentioned, the barrier to entry, just to connect, is a lot more straightforward than it used to be. So to not take advantage of services like LinkedIn or some of the other services out there, I think it would be to a transitioning service member's detriment more than anything else. Absolutely, and, and there really there are so many resources out there for veterans. As someone who's been around the world and who has seen and engaged militaries of many other countries, there's nowhere, there's nowhere in the world that takes care of its veterans better than the United States. I can say that, hands down. Wow, wow. And I know with your experience and just with your, your traveling service overseas, that's going to hold a lot of weight with the listener. All right. What would your biggest ask be of the veterans community? My biggest ask? Right. If you're speaking to veterans at a conference and that question is asked of you, what would you have the veterans community focus on or work on or work towards? It's difficult to consolidate information in one place. And so I guess that would be the ideal that if the veteran community could somehow provide a one-stop shop. And I think there are attempts to do so in different places, whether it's, you know, the VA to an extent does it because it provides all of the resources in one place, education, benefits, housing, benefits or VA loans, uh, disability, those types of things. So in one place, you have all these resources. I think a similar uh, organization or entity that could provide a one-stop shop for veterans, so a mentoring, uh, educational mentoring, 
uh, professional mentoring. That would be the ideal situation. Right now, I think there are just so many opportunities out there. You have to invest. There's a lot of training opportunities through different types of organizations and, and big corporations, as you know. And so I think if there was one place to do all that, if the community could somehow consolidate all that, that would be my biggest ask. Okay. And I've seen some efforts towards that. And I agree, you can spend so much time finding the right opportunity because there's a plethora of choices, you know, and it can become a black hole at times if you are doing it alone and not really being guided on that journey. Certainly, certainly. All right. What book would you recommend to the Veterans Leadership Blog podcast listeners and why? Difficult to choose one, so I'll choose three that I all which I think um, are profound in different ways. The first one is a book called The Monk Who Sold His. When I first received this book, it was a gift from someone. Um, I, it was uh, it's probably in the self help section of a bookstore or what used to be bookstores, but uh, that is a very useful book for planning and for mapping out what you want to do in your life. And I found it to be very useful for me, especially during a very tough time when I was in Baghdad, actually. And I found it, I found it uh, very helpful to help me think about my next steps and how I should go about those. And not just from a career perspective, but from a personal enjoyment perspective, trying to really ascertain what makes me happy. Uh, the next book I would recommend is by an author whose last name is Vance, and it's a biography about Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, Solar City, and SpaceX. And this really comes more from the entrepreneurial perspective about big thinkers and the sacrifices they're willing to make to see through the realization of ideas that nobody else thought was possible. Uh, I think it's an excellent biography. And the last book I would uh, recommend is called uh, Design Your Life. And it's basically about something called designed thinking. And it's from a couple of professors at Stanford. And it's another type of book to really help you how to design your life and, and find joy and energy in what you do really helps drill down. So it has practical exercises and then a lot of reading, a lot of real world examples. And that one's called, called uh, Designing Your Life. Wow. Okay. So three titles for the listeners to choose from. And, you know, I'm just fascinated just by the title because it just shows a, a varied range of how to think in process. The monk who sold his Ferrari, a book on Elon Musk, who we all are clearly watching and reshape history and just lastly designing your life, something you always need to be doing, self-assessing, reflecting, and just really looking at what you should be working on based on your gifts, your talents, the opportunities around you, and just putting strategies in place to get to what's next for you, and not just for you, but for your community, for your families, more important for the country. And I think that type of thinking, that type of learning, and tapping into the best of who we are, you know, just benefits everyone to include the world. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, well said. Thank you, thank you. All right, so parting piece of guidance for the listeners? Okay, well, I would say, um, I think I touched on them already, and it's really be flexible, 
and be open to adapting to the new cultures. Um, you're going to, as you transition, veterans, the veterans transition, they are certainly going to run up against a massive cultural shift. And, and it's significant, and so there's no need to downplay it. It's not going to be easy, but you have to be willing, mentally open to adapting to this new reality. And organizations have cultures, and you have to adapt to them. Um, not entirely, but, <laughs> but for the most part, you have to adapt to them. You can bring qualities into them, but again, you have to adapt to the framework if you want to succeed. Um, it doesn't mean thinking outside, not thinking outside the box. It doesn't mean bringing new ideas or trying to instill new qualities. But again, every organization has a culture. And the other one, again, is networks. Just always be networking and thinking about the next steps. And lastly, I would say always try to think about how you can improve or expand your skill set and the strengths that you have. And that also means recognizing your weaknesses and your deficiencies from a professional standpoint and trying to uh, work on those as well whenever you can. And frankly, it never stops. It's always a, it's an ongoing, lifelong process. And, and it's one that uh, we have to be realistic about because skills come and go and, and new characteristics or skills are needed in different fields or even in the same fields you're in. And it's not always easy to transition from one level within an organization to the next. The skill set changes. And so you have to be always trying to refine your skill set. Yeah, I think that's great advice for veterans like, like us and service members who are going to be transitioning, being flexible, being adaptable, and just understanding that fitting into a new culture will require work. It's not just going to happen automatically, but if you continue to have a passion for learning, a passion for humbly just sharing your weaknesses, doubling down on your strengths, and learning what's needed in that new culture, that not only will you survive, but you will eventually thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a great experience. It, it teaches you a lot about yourself, and that's another very important thing. You have to be willing to learn and to grow and to change. Absolutely. Well, Anthony, again, Thank you again for your wisdom and just sharing how best to approach transitions and how far you can go as you continue to serve beyond the uniform. Where can our listeners connect with you if they wanted to learn more about the Foreign Service or even about how to approach uh, fellowships if they're currently in school or university? Uh, well, first, let me just say thanks again, uh, Bernard, for the opportunity to share some of my ideas and some of my experience, experiences, and, and I'm happy to do so um, you know, in the future if others are interested. I think LinkedIn is probably the best way because it's the one I use, the platform I use for networking in that respect. There's lots out there, information that you can access just by simple uh, web searches, whether it's uh, fellowships for State Department work or simply the Department of State website, there's lots on there. But I'm happy to connect through LinkedIn for more specific questions about what this life is like and what the different routes for entry are. Well, great, great, great. Thanks again and enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, thank you, Bernard. Thank you.